0: All right, guys, uh, so today on the podcast, I have Dr. Gabrielle Fandaro of Renaissance Periodization and a vitamin PhD in nutrition. Um, she has a PhD in human nutrition, foods and exercise, um, and her PhD is actually pretty cool. She's studied the role of probiotics on gut health and um, skeletal muscle metabolism. And so we're going to mainly um, dis- discuss a little bit more about her um, gut health research, since that's rather in, uh, you know, that's something that's a hot topic right right now. A lot of people are seeing, oh, I can make a lot of money for, from, from this since it's new, and not many people know that much about it. Now, fortunately, Dr. Fernaro's is one of, of, of the few uh, leading experts in the, the field who does understand and actually knows what, she, what she's talking about and she's, she's not just a holistic nutritionist. Um, also she's pretty jacked. You know, she, works, <laughs> she, she yeah, I think that's, that's low key a prerequisite to work for, uh, for Renaissance periodization is you have large shoulders and traps. and she feels, and she, uh, she fits that, that category and she's, um, competed in bodybuilding. Um, and she's had some, some power and strength sport experience too. Um, so everything yeah, you'd like to tell the viewers, uh, or listeners, Dr. Fenaro.
1: Oh man, just um, happy to be here, and I always appreciate, you know, opportunities to to chat about this stuff, and um, yeah, this is like one of the few times I just like literally just finished training, like most of the time I'm like very, um, I, I guess like covered up, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, now the internet gets to see that I have like giant traps, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, from, from, from your stage shots, they, they they shouldn't be able to tell, but Anyways, she does the lifting thing, she does the brain thing, and that's what we're all about here at Adam Peeler Fitness. So, um, first off, just to begin this, a little bit of a background uh, on Dr. Fandaro, I guess. Um, so, what made you want to get a PhD in gut health and actually delve in, into this topic? Because, you know, of all the, of all the, the topics saying, oh, I want to analyze, the, you know, all the, the bacteria and everything about the, this, you know, Kind of is a strange thing compared to like I want to study the muscles, which is what most people are like. Which you did too, to be to be to to be fair. But you also yes. specialize more in this.
1: Well, ironically, actually, I did want to just study the muscles. Um, so, I, and and the reason that I wanted to get a PhD was really to teach. Um, I uh, I started undergrad as a as a music major, and very quickly mm-hmm. I was Absolutely. like. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I used to sing. Like I was that was I was like I competed at the national level. and um, same. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, do you do any instruments or anything like okay. that now? Nice. Okay, sweet. Very good. Um, I did not stick with it. I was like, uh, you know what, I think this is something that I want to do like out of enjoyment. Um, I wasn't super passionate about like art and music history and I didn't want to learn how to play like a bunch of instruments. So um, I ended up getting, I was just super interested in like biology. Uh, and I had I'd grown up with um, a, a, my mom as a, the, the opposite, I guess, of a role model um, in, in that she told me that like, I wasn't going to be good at math or science because like women in my family just weren't. And so I had this like internal narrative that I wasn't going to be able to, to do those things. And I had to like stick with the arts, but I was like, man, you know, biology is really cool. And. I got into like rock climbing and lifting when I was like 18, 19. And I was like, is there a thing that I can do where I like do science and exercise at the same time? And yes, exercise science. (laughs) So that was my bachelor's. And while I was in my junior year, I started um, tutoring uh, my classmates in in anatomy and fizz because it was like the most amazing course I'd ever taken in my life, Um, my professor would have people go up and do like little reviews at the beginning of the class to say like oh you know last time we learned about whatever and um, I would do that like every day and then at the end of the semester he you know learned that I had been doing all this tutoring just like pro bono I mean like hours every week and he invited me to teach his last lecture on renal physiology and from there I was hooked I was like oh I need to, to teach people things. And at the time, what I didn't realize was that I, I really enjoyed that connection that you create with a person when you're helping them, um, like, gain capacity for something, you know, like, these the students became more confident and empowered. Um, and I, at the time, you know, had, I guess, some, some innate capacity to explain things in a way that made sense to people. And I was patient and non-judgmental and I gave them the space to come and say, hey, I'm really confused and it was okay. Whereas I think, you know, for them to go to the professor, it might have been a little bit more intimidating. Um, So I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be a professor, like teaching is amazing. And so from there, I uh, decided I was going to pursue my PhD. So I went straight from bachelor's to PhD. Uh, I had a six months or so of working as a research assistant in the Skeletal Muscle Phys Lab. So I went there because I was like, oh, Skeletal Muscle is the best. I love sliding filament theory and like biochemistry. This is so cool. And so I became like a TA for metabolic biochem. And and my original project was actually looking at the role of high fat feeding in um, cachexia or muscle wasting um, because high fat feeding seems to disrupt the mTOR pathway of hypertrophy. Uh, So I had that project going. And I was pretty good with animal husbandry, so I ended up um, working with a lot of the rodent projects outside of what I was doing. And we would do um, IP, intraperineal injections of LPS or lipopolysaccharide. And I was like, why are we, you know, I know that we're doing this to initiate an inflammatory cascade, but like, what does this represent in a human model? Why are we using LPS? Come to find out that that is an endotoxin that comes from the gut. There are certain types of gut bacteria that contain this LPS in their cell wall and when they die and they they break down, that can be released into circulation. And they found that it would bind to specific receptors of the innate uh, immune system that were locate, located pretty ubiquitously. So you see them in the intestine, you see them in skeletal muscle. And when they bound to the receptors on skeletal muscle, um, they caused metabolic dysregulation. So the skeletal muscle became metabolically inflexible. So it didn't uh, fully oxidize fatty acids. So you would end up with sort of these like intermediates that would be kind of secondarily in- inflammatory. Um, and it wasn't uh, very insulin sensitive either. So that's what we were mimicking in these mice. And I thought, well, why, are we, you know, why aren't we looking at the, 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 the source? Why aren't we looking at the gut and seeing like maybe we can prevent the leakage of LPS or see like, why is it that we find that um, individuals with obesity you know, sometimes have more of this LPS and have more of these uh, receptors? And, uh, so my, and my, my PI was kind of like, oh, we don't do that. Like we study skeletal muscle, you know, not the intestines. And I was like, but I'm super curious. And, um, some months later we ended up getting, uh, funding from a probiotics company to study the effects of probiotic supplementation during high fat feeding. So, you know, it's a uh, research institution. This is at Virginia Tech. And like, you know, you, when you have funding opportunities, you go ahead and, and explore, wasn't really like our primary area, you know, looking into the gut, but um, it was close enough. So we were able to, to make it applicable to skeletal muscle. So this was my side project. I had, you know, a gajillion mice that I had to go in and tube feed every day. We had to do an oral gavage of probiotics every day, huge pain in the ass. Um, and then um, my, my main project looking at high fat feeding uh, and, and hypertrophy, that went off without a hitch. It was like six months of just like perfect, like didn't lose a mouse, um, you know, the sack the, the and collect all the tissues went perfectly. And I was like, okay, we have to be really careful with how we're uh, storing these samples because um, the RNA later that we use to, to like preserve the RNA in those tissues just like takes, takes Sharpie right off. Yeah, and I'm foreshadowing here because that's exactly what happened oh, <laughs> that, they, you know, they put them in the freezer. They weren't um, frozen yet. The RNA later came off. We lost the entire, almost the entire cohort of, of skeletal muscle. And you like, there's not a lot you can do, you know, when you're trying to like quantify um, <laughs> your gene expression. So you we know. were like, yeah. So it was like, well, shit, now what? And my PI is like, well, you've got the side project. Let's just make that your main project. So it was completely by accident that I ended up studying anything to do with the gut. Like that was not my plan, but we did that. We did, we ran multiple cohorts of these mice. I assisted with the subsequent um, human study. I collaborated with some other labs too, that were looking at like specific polyphenols and, and, you know, markers of inflammation and, and intestinal permeability. And um didn't really, I, I didn't plan to do anything with it. It was a means to an end. Like I wanted to finish my my doctorate and go on to teach. Um, but three years into my doctorate, my, Virginia Tech started a uh, fellowship to prepare future professors. So it was, it was uh, the scholarship of teaching and learning. So we were learning you know, how to effectively help students learn, like how do we enhance motivation, like all the theories of learning and behavior change and you know, how do we um, you know, help our students uh, gain and apply knowledge. And um, so I stayed on to, to do that. So it was five years total. Uh, and then I went on to teach and exercise science and taught primarily sport nutrition, anatomy and phys. Um, still like, no, I didn't do anything with, with my doctoral research at that point. I uh, did a little bit of undergrad research because it was a teaching institution. Um, so we did a little bit on like L-citrulline and power output. And then um, at, in my fourth year, uh, Dr. Mike reached out to me. He found me on Facebook. I was in like the International Society of Sport Nutrition uh, group having a collegial debate And I had like a tiny little blog that I like wrote, you know, evidence-based sport nutrition articles. And he reached out and was like, Hey, I've got a business proposition for you. And I was like, this is, this is weird. Is it like an MLM or something? And then I realized like, Oh my, holy shit. This is like, this is Dr. Mike from, from RP. So, um, he and Nick recruited me to be an RP coach. And so for that year, uh, my final year of teaching, I taught full time and then I coached part-time. And I did a couple seminars and I was just in love with it. Like I, my work schedule was insane. I didn't take a day off, I think for like most of the year. Cause it was like course prep and emails. And I was just like, oh, I want to be a coach, you know? So, um, at, at the end of that year, I came up on like this crossroads of, I either had to get, you know, two publications and go up for promotion in a year. Um, or like I could potentially go coaching full time. I couldn't, I didn't feel that I could do both to the extent of like, you know, um, excellence that I wanted to, you know, and, and coaching was so much more fulfilling because that was really the dynamic that I wanted. Whereas teaching was, um, I think higher ed has been become commodified to the point that it's difficult to form those emotions, those, those connections rather, um, you know, with students in the same way we, that we can with clients. So um, I, I had some conversations with Mike about, you know, the opportunity and obviously, you know, it was a huge risk, uh, a huge, a huge chance to take, to resign, but that's what I ended up doing. And he connected me with Steve from Revive Stronger. He was my first podcast and I talked about gut health, which was crazy because they were like well, you know, you got your PhD in this, like you're an expert in this. And I was like, no, that was years ago. I don't know. Like, I, I'm not confident talking about this anymore. I didn't even like that shit. You know, like it was just a means to an end. But then I found out like, you know, looking into this space, like the Instagram and internet space, I was like, wow, um, you know what? Yeah, I actually do know more than a lot of people because I've studied this and I understand the nuances and I understand the field. Um, and so I can have a voice in this and I can provide people with good information and I can empower them so that they can make informed choices. And that's really why I got into gut health and, and into like the social media sphere of gut health. Um, just because I happen to have like the requisite knowledge and experience and the ability to gain new knowledge and experience because I still have, um, you know, connections in higher ed and, um, so I can navigate this this field, and um, you know, then and, and also identify other colleagues that are evidence based as well, and say, hey, this other person is great to follow as well. So it was not on purpose that I got into gut health, and I really do it still as a means to empower people. Um, and it's still a fascinating field, and now I have a greater appreciation for it. Um, but yeah, that like when I got into it back in 2014 is when I finished my my PhD. It was still like not as cool and trendy. You know, people were like, "So you like study poop?" And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> um, that's part of it." But you know, the the, the gut microbiome um, is really a, a separate entity from the gastrointestinal tract with and with obvious crossover. Um, but yeah, so, so that's where I am now. I'm trying to, you know, present people with helpful information and, and bust myths where I can, and um, got here on accident.
0: Yeah, so that was an amazing answer. Um, I actually <laughs> wanted to ask based off, actually going off of that, mm-hmm. and because, just because I think that you point out a lot of really good things about coaching, um, is that I found that a lot of times in the modern day, especially in social media, anybody makes like three months of gains, they experience their, their new gains. They're like, I have gained 50 pounds on my bench press, I am a god, or I gained five pounds of lean mass. And then you know, there's like, oh, I can be a coach and put oh, I put in my I put it in my bio and I'm a coach. No way. And what you get is you'll get these people that think all that coaching is, is it's writing new nutrition protocols and training plans. Yeah. And that could, that's, that doesn't even scratch really what the essence of, of coaching is. Because if, if that's all that you do as a coach, you're really not a coach. You're doing what a robot can can do. You're doing what an AI system can do and what AI systems are doing right now. With the RP Diet app, with Renaissance's t- templates, with Juggernaut's t- templates. Um, so, I wanted to ask you then, because you, you point out the role of a coach as a mentor, as a teacher. And something that you've been doing recently is talking about this concept of client centered slash comprehensive coaching, mm-hmm. um, where it's different from the traditional co- coaching model. Um, and I think that it's perfect for this especially for the whole fitness journey and and whatnot. And I think that this is something that many people don't exactly understand. So Dr. Would you mind delving in a little bit to what is comprehensive coaching and what should the role of a coach actually be? What should a coach actually do in order to take the title coach? Because I think that's a very, very, misunderstood title mm-hmm. in the space.
1: Yeah, 100%. You know, I hesitate to, I hesitate to even use the word should um, because this space has, a, has so much sort of like blame and shame and judgment and finger pointing. And, um, and I, I think, you know, even like Shannon and I might, you know, I, I know, I know that we turn people off when we say like this is what we think works really well this seems to be like based on the evidence it looks like these things make a coach or a practitioner effective in helping clients make change and then sustain those changes long term um because it comes across like this is what a coach should do and if you're doing something else it's wrong so um I, and I say that because like part of our set of principles is to sort of, it, it is really to avoid a dogmatic approach. Um, and we've really kind of centered that on on nutrition where we're like, you know, it's probably a good idea to be kind of nutritionally agnostic, like kind of let the client decide what we should, like we can let the client decide what to do. Um, and, and, and so we're careful to say that we want to be non-dogmatic about comprehensive coaching too, you know, not to say like, this is the best way and like every all other ways are shit, And you know, like everyone's a shit coach. Um, but my definition of, of a coach um, is even a little bit different from a mentor. There can be a mentoring aspect to it, but my definition of coaching is just to help people decide what they want to do and then help them figure out how to do it. And that can, that can look very different, you know, from person to person. Um, and, and that the real expert in change is the client. We are experts in training, and we are experts in nutrition, and we are experts in the theory of behavior change, depending on, on who we are. But the client knows best, like what really, really will work for them. Because they've had past experiences, They've had past, past successes and they've had past obstacles. And even if they aren't quite aware when they come to us of what might work for them, it is our role to help evoke that discovery and that decision and to have space for experimentation because it is so individual. And that, that even though you know, where we say like motivational interviewing, for example, is so, so effective for so many things across the board, there are some people who are also gonna be really motivated by someone telling them what to do. You know, it's just kind of short term and maybe that's a springboard. Um, so I think we, I, I just say that in advance of sort of explaining comprehensive coaching so people know where I'm coming from, that like, this is not the end all be all model. This is just something that we have built based on the literature and based on experience um, and, and that we do it in an iterative way that we change it over time, and that we do it really just to help people. We do it to help coaches and to help clients. Um, so the, the model that we're proposing, um, the, the role of the coach is, as, is more of a guide or a Sherpa. You think of it like as a travel guide. So the client says, I wanna get to this destination. And we say, okay, why do you want to get to that destination? Why why is that important to you? And then the client says, whatever, why it's important. We start to reveal what and who is important to that client. We start to ask them about their values. And you can do this in a very straightforward way. We have like activities of like, let's do values identification and sorting. How are you living in alignment with these values and how not? Or we might just have just a regular conversation and, and employ active listening and, and really, you know, Um, get to the bottom of what's important to them. So why do they want to get to that destination? And then we supplement their experiences and their expertise with our own expertise. They tell us what they have done in the past and what has seemed to work for them or not. And from there, we can say, okay, well, let's look at this map together. I can describe to you the different routes we might take to get to your destination. What route sounds the best to you? And they would say like, I want to take the scenic route. Okay, we'll take the scenic route. We just, we have to communicate the whole way. Tell me how you're doing. You know, if you're struggling or you think it's great, you know, we can make course corrections. We might come across a roadblock and we have to do a detour. Well, now we have, you know, another point where we can say like, which way do you want to go? And I'm giving you the information about the potential routes. You're telling me as the client what sounds best to you. You're in the driver's seat and I'm giving you information so you can make the most informed choice. That's kind of how we, that's like the best analogy that I can think of is like the the travel guide analogy, that the the client is the agent of their own change. They're in the driver's seat. We just have to give them um, support, uh, a safe space to talk about things without judgment, um, mutual trust and understanding, and elicited information that we don't view the client as someone with problems that need fixing by us or with a bunch of deficits, that we view them as a person who has the capacity for change and sometimes struggles with things just like we all do and who also has the capacity to come up with their own solutions. And if you practice this, um, you can get to a place where you know you really don't, you don't have to like provide them with solutions, you just, Reflect what they're saying back to you about what they're struggling with. You ask them about their past successes. You ask them about their ideas, and you keep reflecting back to them all of the statements they're making about the changes that they want to make and their their beliefs about what they can do. And then they'll come to their own solutions. And um, and at that point, I think it's important that we encourage them to you know recognize that they came up with those solutions. Um, but it's a huge shift because you know we come into this business, I think sometimes thinking that like we are selling solutions, we're selling results and coaches might worry, what is my client going to think if I, you know, if they come to me with a question and I ask them, Oh, what do you think your next step might be? You know, or what do you think, what, what would work for you? You know, coaches might think, Oh my gosh, my client's going to think that I don't know anything. And clients may also come to the coach and think like, well, this is sort of weird. Why are they asking me questions? So it's really about you know starting with the expectation, uh, starting shared expectations and communication about like how you see your role. Um, that way you both know that like, okay, the client's in the driver's seat and we are guiding. We have a direction in which we're headed. It's not that the client's just like, I'm gonna try this and I'm gonna try this. And the coach is, okay, okay, okay. and doesn't give any information and there's no feedback. There's a two way street there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's more of, it's more of a guiding facilitative approach than it is the coach just saying, this is what you need to eat and this is what you need to do. And like, no questions asked, pass or fail.
0: Totally. Um, I really resonate a lot with that. Um, and I think that in my own practice with my own coaching clients, I don't coach any one particular way, um. Mm-hmm. You know, I have clients have different needs, like you said, different past experiences, different expectations, different needs, different goals. Um, you know, I did, like Mondays or like my massive check-in days. And I send in big audio, video correspondence over Loom, going over all their check-in forms, making sure everything's all, all good. Um, and, you know, my, the way I talk to each client is, that, is it differently on those when I text them. Um, You know, something that my clients will say is, you know, especially to those that have past experiences, it's weird that you ask me what I want or what I think. Yep. I'm so used to just being told what to, what to do. And I said, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do because my goal is not to make you see results. My goal is to help you achieve them. That doesn't mean I'm going to make you do it. It doesn't mean I'm going to shame you, you know? for example when the coronavirus happened if i have a if i have a client who's in the middle of a, of a diet and they're are already, they're already stressed they already burped decently diet fatigued, and they come to me and they freak out because they just ate like a whole entire you know pint of ice cream that and they went over their calories then i'll say well why do you think that you did that yeah do you do you think that maybe this is this that maybe we need to take a step back from you know the current plan um, or, or is this not something that you really think that you can pursue and this was just you know an emotional outcry but this is like you know something that, that that's controllable and I think something that, that you said about how making the client confront their values and what they really do want is, is important you know mm-hmm. I will I'm, you know when I'm coaching people I have people that can just completely go, go fall off the wagons sometimes but guess what it's like what what you said they're taking the scenic group I guess yep. and you like you know and they'll come back to you and they'll say you know what adam you know i tried this fitness thing and honestly it's just not for me man like you know i don't really want this this level of depth health and i'm like you know what man that's totally fine no i you know i wish you all the best and other times i have clients that, that say okay i'm done messing around like let's go and you know to start taking things seriously and you know there's actually there are good times for that too, especially, you know, even if you are a competitive athlete, you know, the bodybuilder off season, you know, have taking active rest after, um, you know, a, a meet for power for powerlifting, whatever the, the time is. But I, th- I think that the application that you're saying where instead of the traditional coaching model where anybody who's been an athlete is like you show up to practice, you do X, Y, 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 Z on. Um, and I have some clients that say, Adam, that's what I need. I need you to be the. I need you to be the coach who has the whistle, who calls me off, who tells me exactly what I need to hear, who is very, very blunt. Mm-hmm. I have other clients who I need to be, you know, a lot more patient, understanding, and you know, talk to them in a, a different way, and that's how they how they see see change. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I really, yeah, I, I couldn't agree any, any more with, with, with that model, and I, I think that with what what you said. You know, the reason why I, I am sharing my experience because I think it's important for, for coaches also to share their, their experiences. Oh, yeah. Um, I know that Eric Helms, for example, has said that he might be more evidence based and be known for his evidence based practice, mm-hmm. but he takes a much more holistic quote role of, as a coach. And that's what yeah. I do too. I think that, you know, having that marriage between knowing what's optimal on paper. And then also understanding that you're dealing with a human being that has emotions, that has, you know, yeah. you're not in a fixed, closed system. So allowing their experiences, their life circumstances to shape how coaching goes for the current coaching period is extremely important because sometimes, and you know, my, my, my coach personally does a wonderful job of this for, for me, if I'm in prep mode, or if I say like, I really, really, I have this goal. I, this is what I want to, to do. They'll be like, okay, well, and then he'll take a much more serious role as, as a coach because my goals are more serious. And I'm yeah. like, uh, I kind of just want to do whatever the heck I want. And, and the Jimmy's like, that's fine.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You, you, this is, this is your experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, you know, tailored for the client. And um, I think one of the questions that's most useful and most, um, uh, am I you know, motivational interviewing, um, aligned, uh, when it's asked in the right way is, um, with sincere curiosity, you know, someone says they want to try something or someone says that they have a specific, um, preference, just, oh, how's that worked for you in the past? Or what is it about that approach that seems to really help you? That way I can get a better idea of what it really is about the, the nutrition pattern or about the coaching style that, really clicked with that person. And it's also very useful because then the client will be able to talk about the things that worked for them. And, or they might identify some things that didn't work for them. So it it can either really improve their self-efficacy, their situational self-confidence. You know, they'll feel like, oh yeah, I'm remembering all of the reasons why this worked so well for me. Or they might think back and you know, really reflect and say, well, actually, you know, that worked short term, but long term, I just, it didn't feel great. You know, like if they, they're like, oh, I've, you know, I've lost weight on keto in the past, instead of saying like, oh, keto is uh, super restrictive. And that's like, you know, it's dumb, that's bullshit. It's, oh, how's that worked for you in the past? Or, oh, what did you like about that? And then they are like, oh, well, you know, it was easy. Um, and then like, oh, okay. So is, you know, what, what about that would you want to do now? And they are like, well, actually, None of it because it felt really restrictive it was just easy at the time and i lost a lot of weight but i gained it all back um and and that way you know we can really determine like how we can best help the client and we give them the space to have that individualized approach and like we don't have to come up with the individualized approach you know we're not like oh like what <laughs> what is the perfect design for this client it's okay you know what works for you and then if we want to give them some information, we can still do that. It's just that we have to do it in a specific. Well, I think you know it's most effective if we do it in a specific way, which is, can I give you some information about whatever it is you want to try? And they are say, most of the time they say yes. If they say no, we're like, okay. But if they say yes, then you give them the information, and then like, what do you think about that information? And they're like, wow, that's really helpful. Um, You know, in in terms of like, for for example, expectations about weight loss. I recently had a conversation where the the client was feeling frustrated that, um, you know, they weren't seeing like three pounds of weight loss a week. And I can validate that experience of frustration and empathize like frustration sucks. That's really discouraging, you know, and oh, wow, you must, you must really just feel frustrated and disappointed when you see that. She's like, yeah. And then I, then I can offer information. Can I tell you some information about um, safe rates of weight loss? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, usually, actually, we might aim for something like a uh, half to one pound per week. Um, so it is—it's less than the three pounds per week, um, but uh, it's one that seems to be more sustainable and you know doesn't come with health risks. Um, what do you think about that? And then, oh wow! Well, I didn't realize that. That seems much more reasonable. And now, you know, you've, had, you've connected with that client, you validated their experience, you showed empathy, you gave them the safe space so that they could feel frustrated and discouraged. You asked if you could give them information, and then you gave them information. And so that's what we can do when a person wants to experiment and branch out and like follow whatever plan they want to follow, validate they have the freedom and the autonomy to do that, give them the information with permission, and then let them go do that.
0: Totally. Totally. I think that's really, you know, I, I gives the viewers and listeners a lot of things to, to to think about when they get, you know, I say, you know, any coaches are listening, you know, to, okay, like, you know, what do I really want out, out, of, out of a coach on um, what are my goals right now and understand that, um, you know, you need to just make, make sure that whatever your goals are, wherever you're, you're at, it's important to. I think first identify that. I think that that's something that you pointed out, you know, it's important for the coaching process to have something, at least have some sort of goal. You know, it doesn't have to be, be, be massive, but it should mm-hmm. be of some sort, you know, mm-hmm. even if it's just something literally that has like, I just want to feel better. Yeah. Like, and then have them identify what that better is because like, uh, like at least have them identify something because yeah. if, if not, and then it's just like, well, we don't really have anything to really go for. In order for coaching and for progress to really happen with any area in life, but especially with fitness, because it requires so much effort and time and discipline to create, you know, to create behavioral change, because that's essentially what you're doing. Um, having some sort of guide. It can be a very, very detailed map. It can be Google Maps. It could literally be, um, here's me, here's Australia. I know it's somewhere over here. <laughs> like, yeah. Something like that. So now I wanted to recircle back to um, your research in gut health. And, um, you know, first, just kind of define this nebulous nebulous term that people throw around, gut health. So Dr. Fandaro, what is gut health? Why should the viewers be concerned about it? Um, And is there anything that they can do to improve gut health?
1: Yeah. That's a Um,
0: very, very, very broad. So just kind of (laughs) saying... Tell me why I don't know.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah, gut health is really a nebulous term. And I mean, it was that that's really was the one of the um, main, it was like the impetus of me, you know, talking about it um, because I saw that people were sort of being uh, uh, led astray and, and sort of manipulated. Um, it was is a really catchy marketing term. Uh, and it's one, you know, I, I use it because I'm not sure what else to call it, you know, because everyone kind of knows what we're talking about when we're talking about gut health. And I imagine that when when people are talking about gut health, they're probably glomming together a few things. They're talking about their subjective um, feelings of, of, you know, like, how do I feel when I'm digesting things? Like, do I feel bloated, constipated, gassy? What's my poop like? And they label that as gut health. Some people will take it out to like the periphery. And like, if you have eczema or acne, that's somehow related to gut health. Um, and then they look at you know, the gastrointestinal tract more specifically, the presence or absence of, a, of an organic or functional disease, inflammatory bowel disease, um, irritable bowel syndrome. And then we also have the gut microbiome, which refers to all of the microorganisms and the genetic material residing in the gastrointestinal tract. That's a lot of moving parts, especially when we consider that there are thousands of species of microbes and like millions of genes in there. Um, and they're all interacting with each other and they're interacting with our intestinal cells and our immune cells um, and the rest of the body as well. So when people say gut health, unfortunately, I think they're referring to like just a bunch of, of, of just stuff that, that We don't really know like, whether it's all actually related or how it's related, um, but they are trying to label like, the gut microbiome and the gut and how it makes us feel, and we, and we call that gut health. What is the actual term of gut health? So it's, it's, it's not. There's like not a thing that's actually gut health. There's no decided upon um, research definition of gut health or a healthy microbiome. We don't have one specific profile, um, in part because of the incredible heterogeneity from one person to the next, uh, and also in part due to the heterogeneity of just the methods used to identify uh, the microorganisms and the genetic material. So we can look at you know who's there, and we can also look at what they're doing, and we can look at who's there in a few different ways. Same thing for what they're doing. We have uh, different sections of the GI tract that are... Uh, characteristically um, uh, different. So the small intestine versus the more proximal versus distal parts of the large intestine, then we're looking at the lumen versus the, the mucus covering the intestinal cells. I mean, there's no one, I don't think there's like one gut health. And just like there's not one, you know, disease state either. We don't have one specific profile uh, of dysbiosis. Uh, people sort of, you know, that, that was for a long time used to refer to a potentially um, deleterious or um, um, potentially harmful uh, profile of gut microbiota. Uh, but now it really just means altered compared to the controls. Because you can take two people who both have an inflammatory bowel disease, uh, the, same, the two people who both have Crohn's, and you won't be able to, to see the same type of dysbiosis from one person to the next. Now, the technology is improving, so we are able to um, uh, look into the, the genetic material with, with greater depth or with a little less depth, but uh, it's less expensive, so we can get a better idea of what genes are present and what are being expressed, and we can get a, a fairly better idea of who's there, um, but, we, we still are, it still is, is in its infancy in terms of how we can connect those two and then how we take it a step further and come up with something that's clinically relevant to say, oh yes, this is, you know, this specific profile is indicative of inflammatory bowel disease. The only exception to that really is H. pylori um, seems to be quite tightly correlated with peptic ulcer disease and that there are some significant differences that we see in gastric cancer. But aside from that, the best we can do is sort of like machine learning algorithms where we dump in a bunch of data and then try to see what patterns might emerge. But again, it's it's just correlations. When we look at healthy controls in different areas of the world, they, they, they cluster by region. So like healthy controls in Korea look like the healthy controls in Korea, but they look very different from the healthy controls in the United States. So when people try to sell things about like, oh, you know, gut health and like a gut reset or, um, oh, dysbiosis is causing your, your rash or your eczema or, you know, like messing with your thyroid. Take a step back. Like we are absolutely not there yet. It's just that when you are looking at thousands of organisms expressing millions of genes, yeah, it's likely that you're going to probably see something change like on accident. That's how statistics work, you know? Um, but we don't have a causative relationship between any microbe and any disease and the best that we can really do is just look at the the totality of the evidence and say there's not a lot that we can say specifically but it looks like it's probably a good idea to eat a variety of dietary fibers because we don't know which microbes like which fibers Um, and that if you're having gi distress um, it's probably not going to be super helpful to take a probiotic. There are some other things that you should do first, uh, and exercise, not too much. Don't drink too much alcohol, you know, just like it's very yep. basic, like not super sexy stuff, but that doesn't sell, you know, supplements and, and whatever, you know, gut reset protocols and other nonsense.
0: Sure. So I guess kind of like rapid fire questions going on off of that um how do artificial sweeteners impact the gut um and really like are they d- d- detrimental because i think there's a lot of con- con- confusion especially with artificial mm-hmm. s- sweeteners and um you know they're largely demonized for yes. no good reason and especially mm-hmm. um i think it just comes from a misunderstanding of it's like the naturalistic fallacy but yes um, could you please delve a little bit more in, into um how artificial sweeteners impact the gut, what we do and what we don't know and what are probably um, best practices in terms of that.
1: Yeah, best practice. Uh, don't exceed the acceptable daily intake level, which is like 60 some packets of, of artificial sweeteners for most people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're taking anything in extreme excess, that could be indicative of a problem. But when we look at the effects of, artificial sweeteners on the human microbiota and human gastric hormones, it is a a minimal to null effect. So nothing happens. That being said, we have relatively few- The gut
0: isn't confused and thinks it's (laughs) real sugar because it tastes sweet and triggers those receptors on your tongue?
1: Well, now that's a different, so we have to have, there there are caveats to this. The effect on the microbiota and gastric hormones may be different from what we see in peripheral neurotransmitters. And we also have to keep in mind that you know we need to differentiate between rodent models versus human models. Um, but when it comes to you know changes to the microbiota, because people are like, oh, it destroys your gut microbiome. No, it doesn't. Um, and You'll probably see more deleterious effects if you do something like a sugar alcohol, which are like they're naturally occurring. we get them in, in fruits and things like that, um, but they can have a laxative effect and they're highly fermentable. Um, so they could be considered to be prebiotic with the exception of erythritol. Um, so your gut microbes will really enjoy that, but you'll feel gassy and bloated and you may have um, you know diarrhea from that and that's kind of unpleasant. Uh, so but yeah and and the one that's been more um, studied most, often um, would be aspartame and no effects. They have not seen any effects in any studies. Looking at saccharin um, and sucralose, there are some human responders that do see some changes to the gut microbiota. That being said, there are a lot of things that change the gut microbiota, like if you go on a gluten-free diet, if you eat keto, again we don't know what the clinical outcomes would be. So um, you know, take that for what it's worth. I personally just decided to go ahead and use aspartame because it's like inexpensive and apparently quite benign. And, um, that's just, that's just my take.
0: Yeah. And I think that a lot of people will gravitate more towards, um, stevia. My understanding mm-hmm. of, of stevia is that it's actually, um, you can't, you can't have as much of it actually, mm-hmm. um, Yeah. like aspartame as a lower ADI. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and it does actually seem to interact with the the microbiota, um, and I think it tastes bad, yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't use it. But if someone likes stevia, I mean, you know, I'm not gonna, um, uh, you know, stigmatize any artificial sweetener. Um, you know, I, I think anything below the acceptable daily intake range is really going to be benign. If people feel better taking like using monk fruit or maple syrup or something. Um, you know, that's fine. Just realize at the end of the day, I mean, if we're talking about weight management, obviously there's more to it than that. It's about energy balance. If we're talking about health, you know, do we care about the level of refined sugars? Um, Then that might tailor someone's decision. Um, But, you know, artificial sweeteners are not inherently dangerous just because they're a chemical. All food is chemicals.
0: All right, great. Um, I guess next, um, what are the effects of exercise on the gut microbiome? Um, and is there essentially, because for, I guess, and this is a, kind of a selfish question, because I've noticed that when I get overreached, I do experience some symptoms of, you know, I, I can't, I just feel more, more constipated. I, I'm not mm-hmm. as, as a regular.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, most of the data that we have is looking at endurance athletes uh oh so we've got we've got data on cyclists of various levels so like recreational elite cyclists rugby players um cross-country runners um race walkers trying to think of what other um runners marathon like elite marathon runners so the vast majority of data uh is looking at endurance athletes um, I think there, there's maybe one study that I can think of that's looked at resistance training, and I'm actually now collaborating with um, a researcher out of Lipscomb University in Tennessee. Um, I helped to write a grant, design this study looking at the effects of resistance training on uh, GI distress, and we're also going to be looking at some sex-specific differences uh, in, in the microbiota of um, collegiate athletes. So that'll be sort of a that's like a pioneering thing because just you know people aren't really looking at you know at at resistance athletes Um, and then actually there was one in bodybuilders too but it wasn't really looking at the effects of exercise it was looking at the effects of diet like dietary extremes in resistance train versus endurance athletes so the effects of exercise. Um, in, in terms of like direct effects on the GI tract, if we're looking at intense endurance exercise above about 80, 85% VO2 max, especially if we're looking you know, in, in uh, like high temperatures um, or in, you know, concurrent with uh, improper race fueling, the mechanical stress and then the ischemia, the lack of oxygen and the changes in pH that occur um, due to blood being shunted away from the gastrointestinal tract, those come together to induce exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome. So most people will have experienced what is acutely called runner's trots, um, but it's like acute, painful, watery diarrhea that happens after you do an endurance event. Um, so that, that is a very real effect. Um, it most often uh, affects female athletes. Males can be affected too, which is more common. in Females and individuals with um, uh, irritable bowel syndrome—it looks like it's exacerbated by, as I mentioned, the improper race fueling. So if we have too much fat or too much fiber, um, too much fructose beforehand, if we're not taking in, um, you know, the c- proper concentration of carbohydrate beverage, uh, then that can exacerbate those those uh, issues. Um, in terms of the effects on the microbiota, uh, it looks like. The, there, there's a dose-dependent response in terms of uh, or excuse me a dose-dependent relationship between cardiovascular fitness and uh, microbial diversity. So people who engage in more physical activity and or people who have greater levels of cardiovascular fitness, they tend to have more diverse uh, microbiomes. And there are some characteristics of the bacteria and of the microorganisms that are present there and that they are great at fermenting. So they create a lot of butyrate. So people who are highly active tend to also have higher fecal butyrate levels and butyrate is regarded as a beneficial short chain fatty acid. Uh, And recently they found that in some elite marathoners, they also had a specific group of bacteria that were good at converting lactate to um, propionate, which is another short chain fatty acid. So they were kind of like Clearing lactate, which uh, does isn't as energy available, it isn't as energy dense, and then like creating propionate. and so kind of like energy harvesting from something that was sort of a waste product in the gut, and and making that energy available to those marathoners. Um, so that's sort of an interesting, um, you know, new development. We don't really know what the effects of resistance training are. We don't know if we would see the same relationship between diversity and resistance training, but that's something that uh, we hope to elucidate, you know, going forward. Um, as I mentioned, there are some gender-specific differences too. So we see that there are some taxa that are uh, more prevalent in females than males. So that might, there might be a, react, a a relationship between that and like maybe why we see, you know, extra GI distress in female athletes. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, it looks like it's a good idea to get some level of physical activity, um, you know, in, in based on the data, endurance activity seems to be, you know, uh, consistently associated with enhanced diversity, which is generally regarded as a good thing. Uh, If we have a a diverse microbiome, that means that we have a a good, uh, like a, a balance between our beneficial, neutral, and potentially pathogenic bacteria, and that we have a lot of functional diversity too, so that they're great at fighting off infections and energy harvesting and creating micronutrients for us.
0: Which would you be mind uh, defining what you mean by energy harvesting? Because that's actually something I'm not as familiar with.
1: Yeah. So energy harvesting is the ability of the microbiota to uh, take take uh, contents from the diet that we cannot. Uh, release chemical energy from so basically like dietary fibers we don't have the day di- the digestive enzymes to break the bonds in those uh, long chains of, of carbohydrates and so they would basically like pass in and and through us and exit our body completely undigested whereas the bacteria can ferment them and they take something that's indigestible to us and convert it to a fatty acid oh, which sure. we can then uh, absorb so so they can oh, actually increase not- the
0: this, yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Cool. So yeah, like maybe I've I've, I've seen estimates of uh, five to fifteen percent uh, increase in in energy availability of what we've eaten.
0: Cool, that's mm-hmm. really really in, in, in interesting. So basically, just we don't know that much regarding resistance, resistance training. Again, like well, lots of things with gut health, we we don't know you know definitely with a lot of things, but probably okay. accumulating some sort of regular physical activity. Um, and maintaining, you know, some sort of cardio respiratory fitness is likely beneficial. Um, and I'm assuming this is kind of like, because like going back f- full circle, you know, you kind of said a lot of, you know, it does connect to a lot of things with the whole entire body, you know, so mm-hmm. kind of what's probably most overall best for, for health is probably best for um, your gut, because it's probably how it downstream. Uh, yes. Would you say that that's a very, very good way of summarizing the current, knowledge is basically just, you know, follow ba- basic good preventive medicine practices. And then yeah. until we, we, we know more, that's more or less the best that um, we can do to have a optimized gut health.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, the reality is even when we have interventions, even, even in our CTs when we take them long-term um, we, we see an initial shift in some taxa, there are some microbes that are very responsive to dietary changes. They're kind of finicky, so they might like die off really quickly. Um, but there tends to be a rebound effect long-term. So we maintain anywhere from about 60 to 80% of our, of our uh, microbial profile, kind of like regardless of what we do long-term. So when you think about that, you know, oh, maybe 20% is within your um, uh, control to, to some extent. Um, but you know, the, 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 and that's kind of looking at just who's there, not necessarily what they're doing. And this is an entire ecosystem with like it, existing within our bodies. Um, if, even if we were to try and just affect one, I don't know if you guys, if, if people are familiar with the old nursery rhyme, like I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she, she swallowed a fly and perhaps she'll die. And then like she swallowed a cat or whatever. Swallow a fly. it's like that there, there was well, going to no, be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Extra protein, <laughs> you know, bugs, bugs are going to be the new thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So even if we are trying to influence just one microbe, it's going to interact with other microbes around it. And then those will interact with our, with our intestinal cells and with our immune cells. So when people do say, you know, Oh, we have to like do a, a, a yeast cleanse or whatever, or, you know, we can kill off the pathogenic bacteria and leave the rest. Complete BS. Absolutely yeah. not. That's not a thing that happens. Uh, the, the
0: microbiology class taught us taught me that we have uh, yeast genes and uh, galactose and stuff like that. So it's just yes. like you can't like it's like okay, so you want to shut those off and completely like make those non-existent. Do you want to die and like not be able to like, <laughs> like, <laughs> stress, you like your genes. Like it's just like yeah. I think a lot of it does come from you know. And again, this is why you know I wanted to get you on because. You know, this is something that a lot of people just, they don't know. They, mm-hmm. they don't know. And I think people are scared to, to, to say, I don't know.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And I think that's something that is important to be able to, to, to say. And if you're a responsible pra- practitioner in this mm-hmm. in this space of, especially, you know, I can go on and on and on about how I think there needs to be a higher standard for personal trainers. There needs to be a higher barrier to entry um, because, like, for listeners that aren't aware, the whole reason why a NASM certification or something like that is required for a gym isn't so that they know that you know things. It's so that they can insure you and you don't get sued and they don't get sued. Yeah. i think there seems to be higher higher standards than that but well, that's a completely different podcast um i wanted to i guess um well the last thing i wanted to, to talk about is um in terms of if somebody's having any issues with their diet um you know let's say for example my, my myself i know a few years ago i had some really really big, big issues with you know certain foods um and the only reason why i knew that was because i followed you know I'm going to eliminate certain things. So I kind of went, 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 went like, like the, the map route and yeah. I was like, okay, um, wow. I know apples are really high and, as you know, FODMAPs of broccoli. That makes mm-hmm. the sense why. And like, you know, I, I took it out and like, I literally lost for five pounds. Yeah. In one week. It was it was insane. Yeah. Um, so I guess what was your practical? So if you had a step-by-step, just the last thing I wanted to just say, because we're limited on time. Mm-hmm. Got a step by step thing you want somebody to do if they are experiencing any gastrointestinal distress? Um, is there like what would you recommend that they do in terms of their dietary interventions? And and then you know at what point should somebody consider a probiotic or a, mm-hmm. a or any sort of supplements um, to actually aid in that?
1: Yeah, well I would say first step you know if they're experiencing regular GI distress. Go to a gastroenterologist, um, a person who is um, an actual medical practitioner in the field. Uh, I've had, I've heard from far too many people that they go to certain, I don't know, niche practitioners who have them do these GI MAP tests or completely invalid tests, and or IgG food sensitivity tests, also invalid, uh, and they spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Um, and get nowhere because these are not valid tests. Yeah. So go to a gastro. Um, they will run valid you know, diagnostic and screening tests to make sure that there's not a presence of an inflammatory bowel disease or something else going on. Um, once you've done that, then the next step I would say would be to go through a, a, a systematic elimination diet. The the low FODMAP, that was developed by uh, Monash University. Um, It's one that I provide guidance and education on because it's a little bit um, challenging to navigate alone. And um, I've done the certification through through Monash. um, And and that seems to to really be effective for about 40% of folks with IBS, that it is really just the chemical properties of, of those specific foods that make them highly fermentable and pull a lot of water into the gut and cause GI distress. Um, aside from that, you may, uh, go to, uh, an an allergist who could screen you for potential food allergies, although those are not diagnostic either, but it's another step that you could take that would be valid, um, and, and wouldn't be like a total waste of money. Uh, Allergies are obviously very different from like the fake food sensitivity tests. Um, so those are, those are kind of like my big three that you want to make sure that the, that you are using interventions and means that are actually validated that have a research base um, and that the practitioner can like actually explain how they work um, you know, most people who are trying to sell like IgG food sensitivity tests, they don't know like what IgG is. So, they don't, you know, they don't realize what they're trying to sell. Um, and the same thing with GI map tests. You know, if a person can't explain to you like the difference between um, sequencing for DNA versus RNA, uh, then, then, you know, don't, don't buy whatever they're selling. Like those are two different things. You're going to see two different things when, when you're, when you're um, analyzing in those ways. So um, so yeah. That's that's kind of my my spiel on that in terms of when a person might need a probiotic it's very situation specific and it's strain specific there are not a lot of applications for probiotics uh, outside of of diarrhea caused by like antibiotics or um, traveler's diarrhea Uh, pediatric diarrhea seems to be kind of responsive as well um, and in some cases, inflammatory bowel disease, but again, it's strain specific. So there's not like one kitchen sink probiotic uh, that would help, but you could look at um, Cochrane reviews is one that, that like compiles a bunch of information and then says like, oh, it looks like these strains are helpful for, for this thing. So they actually have one on like uh, uh, necrotizing enterocolitis in infants. Um, and then US, I, I have one on my Instagram. I wanna say it's usprobioticsguide.com. Uh, which sounds really uh, like it's a dot .com, but it's really just a compendium of evidence graded by the quality of evidence for the application of specific strains of probiotics for specific maladies, like um, you know, C diff recurrence or diarrhea or constipation. So um, just making sure that like you know you're you're taking the you know go to a doctor, then do a dietary intervention if needed and then potentially look into supplements. But even when we're doing things like with a dietary intervention, we also have to keep the the context of the client in mind because a person who has Um, you know, a challenging uh, uh, relationship with food or feels very restricted and whatnot, we, it's not necessarily always a good idea to go for wholesale, like traditional FODMAP and be super restrictive with it. We might have to go kind of piece by piece and just look at like, okay, well, what are some of the foods that are highest in, in FODMAP? And like, you know, like you gave the example of apples, that's one that's super common. Apple, apples, avocados, garlic and onion. So kind of taking a look at those first before, you know, and not disrupting in a person, a person's entire life. Um, but uh, you know, the the things like the IgG food sensitivity tests, just can those. Like if I could make those, I don't know, illegal or something, I, I wish we, I wish we would. They're just the biggest waste of money, such a yeah. crock, it's frustrating.
0: They really test what they're supposed to test for, like what you said. Mm-hmm. So, um, Right, Dr. fernaro I think well, I'll wrap things up here. Um, I really wanted to thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, if they wanted to, if viewers wanted to know a little bit more about you and w- what you're doing, and follow you for more really great you know overall information about coaching from gut health to really whatever. Like, where should they find you?
1: Yeah. um, Well, thank you for having me on. And if people want to find me, they can follow me on Instagram at vitamin PhD. And I also have a website vitaminphdnutrition.com. They can also follow my colleague um, and dear friend Shannon Beer underscore. And we have a website, um, uh, btgcomprehensivecoaching.com. So that's where we're putting our comprehensive coaching content and articles. Um, we're in the midst of our webinar series right now, which is super exciting. And um, they can also find some of my content on um, the Renaissance Periodization website and RP Plus if they're subscribed to that. So got a little bit scattered all over the place. And um, I always answer DMs on Instagram. I obviously can't like, you know, give away uh, medical advice and whatnot. But like if people want to connect, then I'm, I'm always happy to do that.
0: Awesome. Well, like I said, uh, thank you guys so much for... Uh for listening. I hope that you guys got something from from this, and uh, make sure to follow Dr. Fenaro for, uh, you know, if you guys want a little bit more in-depth information on this, but uh, we'll talk to you guys in the next one. Bye.